mom and dad, especially dad, didn't believe in it. He was like, no, it's not going to work. Korean food should be like this, has always been like this. People are not going to accept it. They're going to be like, this is not Korean food. This is not a Korean restaurant. I thought otherwise. I'm Matt Levinson, and my guest today makes handcrafted objects from metal, concrete, sometimes timber, beautifully shaped spoons, a cup, a dustpan and broom, a light shade, even a starkly geometric bookmark. If that wasn't enough, he runs one of the city's much-loved restaurants, Sang by Mabasa, pushing the thinking around Korean food. His work is extraordinary and deeply tied up with family and friendship, and the everyday as well as the exquisite. When I found out the one person, Kenny Yongsu Son, was behind both of these projects, I had to find out more. And that's what this podcast is all about. Talking to people who make great things happen in our city, getting to know, you know, what makes them tick, who they are, how they got to the place that they're at now. Kenny, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. No, pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me, Matt. You were born in Seoul in 1987. That's great. You know, a big moment in South Korea, you know, like, huge political upheaval you know financial change all that kind of stuff which i'm sure was like completely you know you were completely unaware of at the time tell me about your childhood what what was it like my childhood okay um my childhood wasn't anything i think you know looking back anything spectacular or special I, i grew up as an only child um in seoul i grew up with my grandparents by my side as well so lived with my grandparents of my dad's side mum and dad um, both my parents really at work most of the time so I was looked after quite a lot um, by my grandparents Um, had really like an average upbringing until you know when I was like seven or eight when suddenly out of nowhere mum and dad said okay when moving to Australia so um, that's when I guess life for me like looking back until you know six seven you have just those everyday as a child those everyday memories but that's when life really changed or kicked off when um, in 1996 our family including the grandparents we moved to Sydney Australia through the convincing of my aunt is what I what I what I believe uh, my dad's sister where they moved here first and said it's a good life and I think it'll be good for me um, as a child growing up or studying or having education in Australia so that's when we moved to Sydney Australia and that's when life changed a little bit so before we get on to how life changed coming to Sydney what what do you remember of life there like you know I mean functionally what were your parents doing they you know your dad had studied architecture your mum had studied fashion was that what they were doing for work well mum um so 70s 80s well 60s 70s 80s um South Korea was a place where it was more it wasn't really about your passion it was more about how do we make a living so south south korea being a country 
that has just come out of war, you know, in the 50s and left with ground zero, basically, and having to raise, or people of South Korea having to raise this country, you know, that was pretty much demolished financially and literally, in a sense. And, um, you know, with both my parents having studied something that wasn't the norm, you know, I guess architecture and fashion, they needed to find a way to basically make a living and for dad it was more getting into a company because at that time architecture had no future or had no money so it was more about just getting employed so he actually started working for a quite a big um insurance firm or insurance company um and just worked his way up there and um that's what i believe that he did after leaving university and same with mum mum after leaving university she she had a lot of passion so i think from what i heard um she she did several things you know she ran like a cafe slash bar with her brother uh, at that time and you know uh she i think wanted to do something with that fashion um industry but you know i think eventually moved into i guess retail but fashion in a sense and started selling i think kids um or children's clothing um so that's what mom did and that's what dad did and for me just just you know um until they came to australia that's what i saw my parents doing that always worked he was always at work came late night um from work working for that insurance company mom was the main one that looked after me after or during work because it was her business uh, so it was a little bit more flexible so i would go to a workplace after school um hang out with her for a little bit have lunch and go back home and uh, i would often be sent to like I guess piano classes or something like that or I would have a tutor come to my uh, place to teach me maths or something and then uh, I would have dinner with the grandparents and the folks would come home and repeat repeat. How did that change when you moved to Sydney like where did I mean practically where did you move to when you came to Sydney? Okay so we moved to a place or a suburb called Eastwood where Uh, there's a big big Korean community so within Sydney there's at that time there's two main places where uh, a lot of Korean people lived which was Stratfield and Eastwood and um, this is because of convenience you know especially for a family like ours where we have never lived overseas and English as a language is limited we needed to be in a safe place and for us that was Eastwood so that's where we moved um, and that's where everything started so I started I think it was three days after I moved or two days after I moved I was just pretty, pretty much just pushed into going to school with zero language skills so that was a bit scary um, but as a, as a kid as a child you know you, you learn to adapt fast you know it wasn't easy for me and i'm sure it was the same for my my parents as well just starting a new life just like that um but you know we we that's what we were faced with and that's that's what happened were there a lot of kids from a korean background at your school if if you know there was that community there a little bit um you know if you go to eastwood now like i would say about 70 80 of the school that i went to which was eastwood primary um I would say about 70-80% or even more are from an ethnic background or maybe even like an Asian background to be precise. Um, but when I was there, 
um, at Eastwood Primary, it was almost like 30% ethnic background and the other not. And so, yeah, the, I mean, like I said, it was a suburb with quite a bit of a Korean community, quite large Korean community, but um, not as much as, I guess, what it is now. So, yeah, a little bit, but at the same time, you know, we're kids and even the Korean kids, I'm still an outsider, you know, so um, it wasn't easy. For a lot of kids who moved here in the 70s and maybe even the 80s, the food culture was one of the things that they found most shocking about going going to the new school in, in Sydney, right? Like you brought your food from wherever you were from, whether That's it was right. Vietnam or, you know, Greece or wherever. And, you know, the kids there were just really looking down on it and That's right. they had their Vegemite sandwiches. What was it like in the 90s doing that? Same thing. I mean, you know, when you first, you know, go to school, I think, you know, I... I think what happened the first day was like at that time right opposite where the school was located we had like McDonald's so I think that was my first lunch from what I remember which was you know pretty good from my memory but of course you know what I'm accustomed to what they're accustomed to you know dad especially dad especially being you know I guess the the cook of the house he would often make things like you know kimchi fried rice or you know something with like a Korean ingredient or Korean flavors or even something like kimbap which is a Korean seaweed rice roll it wasn't so much I think at that time what the kids were saying but it was I think me being just really aware of what the kids would think and say so I would often eat alone and come back to play with the kids you know that was regular and I was okay with that you know at that time I think it was more when we would go to high school where the kids started you know the kids are you know you start being teenagers and and you start saying things and thinking things um, and you start saying things out loud just so you can be a cool teenager you know so I think I found it a little bit harder during high school times but primary school was quite fun for me from my memory wasn't too hard for a lot of us you know we sort of like make stuff and you know making art and making objects and that kind of thing in primary school and there's a sense of play with that and people sort of move on and do you know sort of you know different subjects and what have you and end up taking a different path you know, we're going to talk about some of the object design that you've done in your career. And I'm, we're sitting here at Sang by Mavasa. You know, you can hear the cars going past and we're surrounded by these objects that you've designed. Through that period, school, going to high school, were you making things? Was, was that something that was part of your childhood, that kind of, you know, working with your hands, creating stuff? Mm. Okay, so I was raised up as a sports kid. So I like practiced or played sports all my life so I swam since I was maybe five or six um, until I was like about 13 and then I eventually just got really bored of that solo laps over and over again and I really wanted that playfulness bit of that community bit of that team thing so I asked you know, I've been swimming, you know, and they really wanted me to take that seriously. Um, well, I'm talking about my parents and um, I 
told you know mum and dad I really want to switch up what I'm doing and I started soccer or football you know um, uh, compared to other kids that played soccer seriously I started a little bit late or later um, in my um, I guess teenagers about 13 when I was about 13 compared to others that started much earlier I guess the kids that were taking it seriously and um, I caught on and I eventually started playing semi-pro until about 18 and that's when well, throughout that growing stage, you know, I was always, I guess, into building, making, drawing, not so much. I think I was always interested in materiality, hands-on, building, you know, Lego was a huge thing with many kids, like many kids, but Lego was a huge thing for me. I really enjoyed that making and here and there, you know, I saw spurts of creativity from my parents as well. Um, yes, they were living a completely different life to what they were studying or imagining, I suppose. Um, but, you know, whether it was by choice or, or they had no, no choice, you know. Um, but I saw spurts of that creativity um, as I was growing up. So, in a way, unconsciously, I guess, I was surrounded by it. But, you know, I never really had that opportunity to really do it, you know, or study it. And um, upon, you know, going into that 17, 18 year old age, I started thinking about university or life after high school. And I wanted to make a little bit more of what I was doing or what I wanted to do. And I told mom and dad, I wanted to go to university, but I want to do something that I haven't done before which was art or visual arts and it was a shock to them because they spent all the time the money in bringing me up as a, a soccer player or a sports person and they wanted me to take that a little bit more seriously and I did but I also saw my life as someone that could do much more than just just play sports and um, or I wanted to basically and um, yeah so like compared to others that had I guess they, either they went to a college or a school that where they learned how to draw or whatever a little bit of visual arts or they did visual arts at high school I actually didn't do visual arts at high school I did design and tech but that's as close as I got but um, through interviews and uh, whatnot portfolio submissions you know, I, I don't know how, but I ended up getting into a visual arts school. It must have been somewhat bittersweet for your parents, you know. They'd, they're clearly romantic kind of people, you know. Your dad studied architecture and your mum studied fashion in this context where they knew that they probably could never work in those areas. And, you know, you're saying that they had spurts of creativity that you saw coming through despite the fact that your dad had had to, you know, take up this kind of salary job in insurance. Can you tell me a bit about what some of those spurts of creativity were and, and I guess also what your parents wound up doing when they first landed here in Sydney? Mm, okay, so, you know, when I was growing up, dad would, like, come home. He's a bit of a genius, like, a bit crazy, but a bit of a genius if you put it in a good way. You know, he would come home drunk, like, off his head, you know, and he would just suddenly start playing the piano and he's never been taught the piano. You know, so he's seen it somewhere, heard it somewhere, 
you know, this is an era where there's no YouTube, there's nothing that you can expose yourself where you could learn how to play a piano unless you actually, you know, get taught. And he would play a piece. Just, I think he, like, thinking back now, it would have been 100% through just him listening to certain things and just, you know, recognizing tunes, notes, and just playing it. And he wouldn't even play it like how would normally you would normally play a piano with 10 fingers. He would play with like two or three fingers and play that tune, play that melody, that entire song just just off his head. And I found that a little bit like amazing. Like thinking back when I grew up a little, or when I was a little bit older, I suppose. And mom as well, like she, she has the most immaculate drawing ability um and i knew that from very early on like she would help me with my school projects and just amazing like she would draw a couple of things for me for these assignments projects that i would get during holidays or whatever and i knew that she 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 had that you know that that capability and dad you know a little bit different just that naturally born talent that it's hard to describe and i think that's you know we're going to i guess talk about it a little bit that's how he's the head of the the kitchen that we have for our restaurant because he's never been taught how to cook there's the phone ringing just one second yeah so he's you know i guess looking back now even him being in the kitchen now it just makes no sense but it makes every little bit of a sense because of that his freak you know nature that he has it's really hard to explain yeah and, and did they come straight into cooking working in restaurants that kind of thing when they first arrived no so when they first got here of course you know earning money or making or trying to find a living uh, or way to make a living is the number one thing um and you know, as most immigrant uh, families or migrant families, um, you have to do something where it involves pretty much zero speaking, you know, because you can't speak the language. So they were put into cleaning. So um, dad looked for a cleaning job um, with mom and they started cleaning offices and then they decided to move more into intimate settings so they started cleaning houses people's houses um so they did that for about two years or so and mum's very timid she's a tiny person and she's never done anything like this in her life and of course you know just forced to do it because there's no other way and you know and at that time you know we didn't have lots of money and that's the only thing they, 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 I guess they they could do, or something else that would been would have been a similar thing, but just in a different industry. And mom, about two years onwards, decided, okay, I need something that's a little bit, just a little bit less physical, but also something that involved communication because she's a great communicator and she's a great people person so she started working for a korean restaurant in eastwood um as a front of house uh staff and that's how she laid her foot first into the hospitality industry the first reference i can find to you guys running restaurants is Hancock, um opposite opposite the galleries victoria where the the anz building is nowadays correct correct yeah, so mum, it's funny that you mentioned that because the person that she went into business 
for that restaurant called Hankook, uh, which was on Pitt Street, was the first person that she ever started working for um, in Eastwood. So they've become almost like employer, employee to a really great friend. And she, her business partner, knew that mum was a great worker, great person. So after, you know, many years on, you know, they... She found this space that was due for renovation or due for redevelopment, basically. They were going to demolish the building, build that ANZ building, which is there now. And um, the rent was going for, like, so cheap, you know, for that location, that space. And they were like, you know, give or take, let's just give it a go. If it doesn't work out, then we just, you know, we just leave this place. So they went in, it needed a lot of work. No one knew about this place. It was an empty restaurant pretty much. And mom and her business partner went, opened up basically something with minimal money spent because they felt like, you know, we're not gonna put any money into this and let's just see if we can make it work. And it was two women trying to run like, a, you know, like a 60, 70 packs restaurant. It was quite hard they needed to bring in someone else and that's when dad came in he's never been in a commercial kitchen before but he's been doing one or two shifts like um, at his friend's cafe just sandwiches passes simple dishes and um, because you know everyone knew that he had talent in the kitchen but he's never done it properly so he did it as a casual thing and Mum and dad, uh, mum and her business partner thought, let's just bring him, bring him in as a helping hand in the kitchen. But he eventually become became head of the kitchen there. You must have been about twenty by that time, or yeah, something about like that. that. Yeah, about were you that. were you working there as well? No, no, no. So I was straight out of high school, and I actually did a year of hotel management, um, business studies and hotel management. So I did that for a year straight out of high school just because I didn't know what to do. Um, And at the same time, I had applied for the visual arts school and I had got into this business uh, degree first and I thought I'm not hearing back from this art school. So... I'm just going to go start my business studies and I did that and then I actually heard back from the art school but it was too late by then so I just deferred that course so I was actually studying hotel management um, and then also working on the side at hotels um, or at a hotel at the western actually at the western in Wynyard I was working there so it was quite close to where their work was so I would often go there just to just to have lunch or whatever but I wasn't actually involved in hospitality at at all, besides what I was, I guess, studying. You can imagine that kind of uh, experience in hospitality management must serve you well with running this place all these years later. Um, When you look at this restaurant, you know, sitting here in Sangbai Mabasa, you know, you can hear the trucks go past every now and again. You know, this restaurant and and the previous one, Mabasa in Balmain, have a reputation for kind of pushing, you know, the kind of... I guess what people expect from Korean food here, you know, we've, you know, I guess Australian customers or eaters have come to be used to bibimbap and barbecue and, you know, fried chicken and all these kind of things that are like totally mainstream now in Australian food. 
was all that stuff in place way back then with Hankook? Like, were, was it sort of pushing the edges back then or was that something that grew over time? Not at all. I would, I don't know if, you know, I, I'm not, I can't speak for the entire country, but as far as I'm aware or I was concerned back then, which was, you know, post E2000, um, even until, I guess, you know, early, uh, about 2010 or something, um, I would say there was no restaurant that was, no Korean restaurant that was actually pushing boundaries. And when I mean by pushing boundaries, I'm not talking about doing something special, but I'm talking about doing the ordinary. And when I talk about the ordinary, I'm not talking about the ordinary that you get from Korean restaurants, but what we eat at home. You know, there was no restaurants that would be presenting things that we grew up eating because I think we were scared, you know, as Koreans, because I think many Koreans going into restaurant business thought, okay, these people or others that are not Korean, they're not going to eat this, you know, because they've never eaten it. They're not going to like it because they've never had it. You know, they're not going to enjoy these flavors because it smells or it looks different. But I, like my gut deep inside, I believed otherwise. And one of the main reasons why we, or why I convinced mom and dad to open in, open Mabasa in Belmain was that it had very little to like zero or very close to zero communities of Korean people and I actually really wanted to or really wanted them to open up something where we would be sharing the Korean culture to others not to Koreans otherwise it just goes in a circles you know Korean restaurant within a Korean community full of Korean customers it just goes in a circle it's great and there's we need that as well but at the same time we need those restaurants that just I guess uh, think of doing something a little bit more than what exists because otherwise there's no there's no development you know there's no uh, development within I guess uh, the, the culture the food um, yeah so the community so that's why I had convinced them to open up something in Belmain where we could try to do something a little bit different and also share to a bigger audience You'd been studying at Sydney College of the Arts, which is just up the road in Roselle. Correct. And, you know, we'll talk a bit about your time there in a little bit, but was it was it the fact that you'd been studying there that kind of opened your eyes to Balmain as a potential location? Definitely. So whilst they had Han Cook uh, in the city, um, that's when I was studying um, or completing my studies um, in Roselle. And I would... Dad was working pretty much like nonstop, seven days a week, pretty much, or six and a half days a week. But mom worked about five to six days. So we would, as an only child, you know, I would spend a lot of time with mom. We would actually just hang out, go dine somewhere, go to a cafe. And Balmain was one of the, 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 the places where we spent a lot of time together. And we, well, I started to notice the the lack of ethnic or diverse food or cuisine within Balmain and I actually quite liked the the vibe of 
Balmain and the, the clientele, all the customers of the community that Balmain presented. Um, you had a lot of pubs that had a good vibe, a lot of cafes. It was a peninsula. It wasn't like a drive-through. So it just had a nice feeling about it, nice calm feeling about it. So, um, yeah, it was definitely on the back of my mind. And I think naturally, you know, it was one of the many few places that I brought up when they were looking for another place. It must have felt a bit risky, though, as well. You'd been with Hankook uh, presenting a very classic Korean offer. Um, you're opening up in this area that doesn't have, you know, as you said, doesn't have a strong kind of um, Korean, let alone sort of broader ethnic kind of base. And you're doing something kind of that's pushing the edges. 100%. It wasn't easy. Like, you know, in, even... And this is like, you know... It's not that far away, 2010, 2013, something like that. And, you know, we would have people coming in and they'll go, oh, what type of cuisine is this? It would say Korean. And then they'll be like, oh, do you have something like a Pad Thai? Um, and this is after I told them that this was a Korean cuisine, you know. So it wasn't easy, you know. <laughs> and um, it takes a bit of time educating the people and also convincing the people. It wasn't easy. And Balmain's a community where... There's a lot of pride and people, a lot of people, it's a bit different now and um, ever since we've moved on, but when we were there, people didn't like change that much um, within Belmain. There were a lot of people that lived uh, there for a very long time um, and, you know, even they, even though they have traveled, experienced other cultures, communities, um, backgrounds, traditions, still there was a lot of stubbornness um and also that that pride that Balmain had so and that that uh lack of wanting to change so it was a bit difficult in the beginning and throughout as well what was the response like what how did people respond to the food um in the beginning like almost like okay let's see what you've got but you know as time goes on and this is what I believe in as well. You know, food is food and good food is good food. So whether it's Korean, whether it's Indian, whether it's Sri Lankan, whether it's um, Japanese, you know, good food is good food. And people start to taste that and people start to recognize that and people start to see the amount of hard work that goes into the food. And once you start trusting the food, the business, the people, then you start trusting what we have to offer. So it's, like I said, it's about educating and it's about making people believe. And, you know, like we're in the middle of like nowhere. No one knows about us and we, don't, we do like zero marketing. You know, at that time I wasn't really involved. So it was really just mum and dad, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s. So, you know, what marketing are they going to do? Like zero. So it's going to be through word of mouth and, um, eventually we were there for about nine years and you know we survived through just purely just word of mouth and people gaining people's I guess respect and trust over time yeah I'm a local I live in Roselle and you know going down there you know the word on the street was this is an adventurous interesting place I went out on dates there a few times with nice. my partner and it was always amazing and what happened there because you then Finished, wrapped up about 2019 that's almost a decade in mm. and opened up over here about the same maybe just a bit before yeah, yeah. Um, what what was the transition there so um i had graduated school you know while they had the balmain place and 
um, I started working, moved overseas a little bit, and I was helping out here and there. And they had it for nine years. Nine years for any business is a long time. And once you start doing the same thing, I think, you know, to be honest, within a restaurant, any restaurant over five years, it starts to be quite repetitive. And also, it can be a little bit tiring, exhausting as well.、Um, So, you really have to push it after that five year mark, I think. And they had it for nine years, and I think they just wanted to do something a bit different. And they had mentioned that they wanted to sell or let go of the Balmain place. And I was overseas at the time, and I had just come back. And we eventually found someone that wanted to take that place on, but do something completely different. And we saw that as an opportunity for them to just finish up. And leave, and we didn't have a lot of time, and so not a lot of people, our customers. I think that's one thing that we sort of you know, were like, ah,、oh, you know, we could, we, we just wish that we had a little bit more time to just leave the place so we, we could just goodbye, say goodbyes to a lot of our customers that we had built、um, for that, you know, nine year period. But, you know, eventually they find out that we've left, moved somewhere、um, else. and Yeah, that's what they did. You know, we saw an opportunity, and I saw an opportunity to help out for them to just get out of there. And、um, we didn't know what, maybe find something else, but yeah,、um, just move on. Yeah. This, this place is, in some ways, you know, really tapped into a moment. You know, like historically, restaurants in Sydney have been quite large, and, you know, the place that you had in Balmain was, you know, a decent sized restaurant, like lots of tables and this sort, sort of thing. Here, where、uh, a couple of doors down from the Cricketers Arms on Favot Street, there's a couple of tables, a little bit of counter space.、Um, it's pretty cozy and intimate. Is that, were, were you specifically looking for something like this or did it just open up? Not, actually, not entirely. We had no idea what we were looking for. They were very open to whatever they could find that was going to be like as soon as you walk in, this is it type of thing. But They were looking around, saw a couple of places, even, you know, I think、uh, at one point they were thinking of doing takeaways in like a food arcade,、uh, food court type of、uh, environment as well. That was a possibility. And this place, mum saw on like a newspaper ad or something. And she had come here, I'd come with her as well. And we saw it with the real estate agent. And in the beginning, we were like, it's too small. We can't do anything here. Like, we're not going to make any money.、We're, it's just, it's like in the middle of nowhere. It's a busy street. There's nothing here except for, you know, cricketers and arms. And that was pretty much it. And, like, we let it go. We let it go. It was actually,、uh, I think it was like a French fine dining place, but it had. Got out of business, so it was closed at the time. They were still paying rent because I think they believed they could sell the restaurant. I think the previous owners, but it was closed out of business. And、um, so we let it go. And then a couple of weeks had passed. We were looking at different places, but mom just like kept saying,、oh, Remember that place on Fitzroy? Like, let's have another look. And so we did that. And then we're like, You know what? Like, let's go small.、Um, and let's Make the people come to us. Like, let's do something where we do the leading and people find us and people come to us rather than having walk ins from streets where 
they're just hungry. You know, we want people to find us and come to us, be be a destination place. So um, from nothing, we decided to just just give this a go and make something of it. Yeah. When you opened, um, Lee Tran Lam, who's a past guest on this podcast, wrote in the Herald that it was one of her favourite places to open that year. And, you know, there's been so many great reviews over that last five years, you know, considering the craziness of that five years with COVID and everything else that's happened. Correct. Um, how, how has what you do changed over that time? Mm, okay. When we first started this place, um, the previous restaurants, I was like, pretty much not involved at all um but when we had my partner and i we had just come back from overseas i had a little bit of time leeway with my work um and you know i had said to my partner um yumi there's so much potential that mum and dad have with their flavors you know with their cooking let's help out let's just make this a little bit more into something that is going to glow their food you know and we decided to help out with the branding the the design of the restaurant the concept a little bit so we changed it up a little bit from what they were doing you know what they were doing was great but we one of the typical things that people have with korean cuisine is they go into a korean restaurant they're often very full because it's one big bowl of a soup you have the rice you can maybe have one or two other things and you can't eat anymore because you're just bloated and you there's these side dishes also great fantastic but again you know just just it's it's a singular concept of a korean restaurant that has been labeled as the only concept which is not exactly it we don't eat like that at home you know yes there's layers of panchan which is the side dishes the rice the soup but sometimes it's just one thing you know with just the side of kimchi rice and sometimes it's just one bowl of noodles you know it's not like how korean food is presented or was being presented at korean restaurants that's not it you know it's a country with thousands of years of history how can it just have korean barbecue chicken and bibimbap it just doesn't make sense there's so much more layers to what korean cuisine was and that's what i wanted to present through sang the current restaurant and mom and dad especially dad didn't believe in it he was like no it's not going to work korean food should be like this has always been like this people are not going to accept it they're going to be like this is not korean food this is not a korean restaurant i thought otherwise you know Believe in me, it's going to work. It actually took about a month for this restaurant to get properly started. And through that month period, dad was consistently like, see, I told you, it's not going to work. But then we just needed the, the, the people with a little bit of influence to just come in, just share that word of mouth. And for because no one knew us you know no one knew that we existed so we just needed people to know that we existed and as soon as people knew that we existed then it just started to take off and um and we're we're so thankful for that because we're, we're doing exactly what we were hoping to do which is people coming to us and not us going to or reaching out to them one of the most distinctive features in this place is your object design. You know, just sitting here, I can see one of your beautiful geometric 
vases with with a little posy of flowers on it and and that brings you know like you were saying that sort of sense of personality or that sense of something like different to this to this place you know you talked earlier about you know like being a semi-professional soccer player and that was the path you were on and then you just kind of changed direction coming out of school and and made a pitch for the SCA how can you talk to me about how you found your voice as a creator in that time because I imagine you know look at these just like such distinctive works and they seem like they you know could have come out just fully formed but I you know that's so often not the case how how what was the process for you of finding your way to this kind of um, object design that you're so distinctly known for now Mm, okay it's just basically doing what I love doing and um, you know I'm lucky to be one of those few people where I can call work life and life work you know I love what I do and I'm lucky to have made this into work and um, it just comes naturally you know I'm forming shapes that I enjoy looking at I'm creating uh, objects and things that I love using myself um, and um, and uh, it's it so happens that it just fits in an environment like a restaurant where I love being in as well and a lot of what I do a lot of what I enjoy revolves around that that, that dining setting that table setting and um, when we first started this restaurant you know we wanted it to be not just a Korean restaurant but our restaurant our family's restaurant and which means there's elements and characters and personalities of each one of us like my partner myself mom and dad and this means the decor as well the the menu the drinks list the food uh the personality our staff as well you know we really want this to be our restaurant and people to come in here almost like feeling like we're visiting someone's household and that's what it uh, we wanted it to be and um, because of the size that it is I think we can make it that it's a tiny restaurant just a hole in a wall on Fitzroy Street it's not so big that we can't manage it's big enough that we can pretty much manage every little detail of it so yeah I mixed up my F streets before I said Favreau not Fitzroy when you you were at Sydney College um, what, what was inspiring you so I was trained as a jeweler um so my techniques uh, or the, the techniques or the skills that I was using was traditional jewellery skills, but within a visual arts context, so uh, contemporary jewellery. But I was always really interested in larger things. Um, just I just found jewellery to be a little bit fiddly for me, so I was more interested in larger things. And I was making larger things upon you know the third or the graduating years and I was trying to wanting to make things that people could use or I could use or utilize but we were taught to present these works through a gallery platform and which I found to be quite limiting you know putting functional work a work that was supposed to function within a white space within then again a white cabinet with glass doors locked up so people can't interact with it and hoping that it would sell and if it doesn't what do i do how do i make a living from this so um i needed it to be a little bit more a little bit faster and 
I believed in work that would reach out to a far bigger crowd than just the arts or the gallery scene. So hence, I went on to study a, a design design course that would help me with this. And then, you know, I went overseas. I did a mentorship in Korea for about six, seven months, just developing my skills. So my, my work now is a combination of the arts practice, the design background as well, as well as the training that I've had. And um, yeah, just making work that could interact with the people just, just naturally because that's just what I enjoy using as well. There's such a long history of, I guess, this kind of work. You're you, alluding to that tension yourself, you know, you were sort of being pushed in this direction of work that would be shown in a gallery context in that kind of sterile sort of situation. But actually the work that you make feels like it's much more connected to a craft and artisan sort of history. And that's work that is so often sort of handed down in a one-to-one way over many generations. How, how do you feel about, I mean, I know there have been sort of some mentorships that have been really important for you mm-hmm. in that path. How, how did you tap into that? For me, within a crafts element, um, skillship or craftsmanship is super important. Everything is crafted, like in life, everything that we see around us it's all crafted whether it's good craft highly crafted or badly crafted everything's crafted so craft i think is the fundamental to everything you know a good designer as well a good architect they all know how to make things and a bad one actually doesn't you know so um if you it's if you see these these designs houses buildings over time you know um it just makes sense that what I'm saying is not a complete lie, you know. I think all good designers, all good architects that often work within that 2D space as well, they're all great makers. They all know how things are built. So I think that building part or the building aspect as a maker or person or a a practitioner that work with material, physical material, I think it's a fundamental thing. So um, for me, skillship was super important it's like language it's like you know learning you know how to speak but if you can't spell if you don't know the grammar it just becomes a little bit difficult you know i think it also becomes quite limited in terms of what you can do so i think that was quite important so for me just developing these skills um, and to do that properly i needed to find ways to do it outside of the institution because wherever you are wherever you live whichever university or college that you go to it's all the same you the curriculum is very very similar you know it's an institution you know it's very similar what you learn what you do outside of the institution is what really i think makes a big difference hence why i really believed in that mentorship or i wanted to learn something outside of the institution that could help me excel past what i was taught in the institutional system it's interesting that you name check architecture in that process because there's such a clearly architectural element to your work or at least resonances um i know you've mentioned tadao and dao in the past but your dad was an architect as well like did you take anything like did you grow up with kind of thinking about architecture not at all um i don't know maybe maybe unconsciously maybe but not at all it's never something that i had thought actually until this day that you know he would have maybe had an influence you know he doesn't 
give a lot in terms of like what he's done in the past through his studies, work. So I don't know all that much of you know the the experience that he has taken on, except for things that Mum has told me. Yeah, so I I don't think so, but I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, maybe unconsciously, maybe. You went to Korea and did this seven-month mentorship. What was it like? You know, Sydney has a very specific kind of culture around the arts and around object design and so on. What was it like going so deep in a, in a completely different kind of context? Correct. Um, in the beginning, I mentioned a little bit about that era that Korea had to go through uh, after the war. And you don't get to a place that you are now, like I'm talking about Korea. You know, it's a country that has developed so much, you know, having companies that you know, are now one of the, the world leading companies, you know, like Samsung, LG, Hyundai, you know, these mega companies, you don't get to that unless there's sacrifices. And that means time. Time is something that Koreans believe in. The amount of work, the work ethic is something that 99% of the Koreans believe in. And it's something that I knew, believed in, but had never really experienced because I grew up in Australia. And that's something that that educational system or that work system of hours, 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 and repeat, repeat, and practice, practice is something that I didn't really believe in and I was never really taught that it was you know more about learn to do do this about 30% and rest is about what you make of the concept or the idea yes yes but like I was saying before craft is something where the craftsmanship or the skill or the skillship is something that you just can't ignore it's like language so I went into it thinking Yes, I know how to make things. I was arrogant, basically. But I met my mentor. His name is Song Jun Cho. He was born 1945, so very different era. And he was taught traditional craftsmanship um, or brought up making traditional craftsmen, uh, crafts work. So has a very tunnel vision mentality, work ethic, works like, you know, 7 a.m. until 6 p.m., treats like like an office job but even longer six days a week and that was hard for me um, in the beginning I found that really hard and even just a simple thing as like soaring you know soaring is the very first thing that you learn like it's like walking in metalcraft or um, silversmithing and first two weeks all I did was soar and I found that frustrating but now I'm just like I'm so glad that that has happened and the first three months of that mentorship was super hard because of all the things that I'm talking about but who was I kidding you know I went into it you know with this arrogant head but I came out of it like having learned so much having earned so much knowledge as a person as well and work ethic as well as I guess the skills and I owe it to him and that work period um, or that making period because I do what I do now because of, of, of that. You came back from Korea and pretty much immediately set up your studio, Studio Kiss. I did. Um, I mean, was that something that when you were in Korea, you 
you, it was clear to you that was that's what I'm going to do, and was the vision set from then of what you were going to make? Well, Studio Kiss was actually just set up just before I went to Korea, um, and I had started to be discovered by different shops, uh, blogs, um, and uh, different brandings. Just started. I had recently graduated, and I had really just started, but I didn't know what to do with it quite yet. And then at that transition or period, I went to Korea. And when I came back, I think that's when I knew—not during it, but when I came back—I think that's when I knew. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Yes, a design ethic, but a hardcore craft. Backbone to what I was doing, um, and also this idea of creating, producing things in a batch format was what I was taught in my master's program. Not a mass production where it's in numbers where I can't manage. It becomes a company. I was more invo- uh, interested in building a practice, not a company, not a brand, but a practice, and that's what I started to do once I came back. So involving. The 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 skillship the the techniques that I was taught, but not to an extent where it started to complicate what people were looking at, or people started to imagine or starting to imagine. Okay, this looks pretty, but how can I use it? But more in a sense, oh, I could definitely see this in my room or on my table or on my desk. So. Yeah, that's when I started to set,、uh, I guess, my brand studio because yeah, just like really functional things that work as part of your normal day to day. One of the things that I really love is the set of teapots that you've been making with Hendrik Foster for some years now. Thank you, thank you.、Um, and you know, <laughs> we were talking about this earlier when you showed me them. You know, like teapots are just this infuriating object that ninety percent of them just don't even work. That's right. I mean, when Hendrik and I, I was introduced to Hendrik Foster through my former lecturer Oliver Smith,、um, and Hendrik and I we gathered through like a dinner together, and you know I think he really liked. Well, that's what I like to think.、Uh, I think he liked where I was coming from,、uh, the head that I had, and the mentality and the work ethic that I had behind my practice. And he mentioned first that let's do something together. I think I like where you're going with what you're doing, and you know I'd like to do something together. You know we're from a different background, different education, different training, different era, but I think it'll be really interesting to do something together. And we didn't know what then, but you know he's someone that is highly, highly respected within the field, and for me, no was not an answer. So. Yes, of course, I was going to say yes, and it was an honor for me to do something with Hendrik. And you know, a couple of like months, many phone calls, many emails.、Um, we decided, eventually, decided a teapot.、Um, and because of the, I guess, the very reasons that you had just mentioned, there's a lot of teapots out there, but not many that are good functional teapots that you like to look at, that you like to have on your dining table. You know, hence also a teapot where it existed in 
almost all cultures where you know some cultures or communities don't drink coffee but i think most cultures most communities drink tea so and it's something that's quite communal as well you know we sit around it we talk around it so we decided this was a nice object to work on and we wanted something that could be timeless meaning something that wasn't going to be affected by trend or by a certain era or time so something that could hopefully last this generation or even further so we wanted to work on a design that could suit a lot of the environment and we wanted to make sure it was a well working teapot what kind of response have you had to it so far very good like i don't think there's been well when people firstly hear that it's handmade the very first question that we get from the mass crowd is oh is it a working teapot and you know of course it's a working teapot uh that's the very first i guess question that we we would often get you know it's it's not a cheap teapot you know it's 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 an expensive teapot but you know i believe in having ownership of something that you enjoy using something that works well something that you enjoy looking at something that allows you to think just that little bit even if it's three seconds five seconds ten seconds of maybe the maker the material how it works and provides that enjoyment whilst you're using it hence it's something that you want to hold on to and that's what we wanted to create something that you would want to hold on to and perhaps something that you don't need another replacement of something that you could almost be almost be heartbroken if you would lose it or if you would break it in that sense, if you have something like that, you don't really need another one. That is enough. You're content with that item. So that's what we wanted to create. And a lot of the people that have seen, bought, um, experienced the teapot, you know, the, the, the responses have been very good so far. It's been almost a decade since you first established this studio. How, how has that, when you look at the objects that you were designing back then, um, there was such a clear kind of vision and such a clear sense of what you wanted to achieve. But, you know, you're like 10 years older now and, you know, these things are things that are like part of your everyday life and part of the way you live. And clearly, like, the way we live changes over that kind of time. How, how are the things that you want to design and that you want to make changing now and how how is the the role of your studio changing Mm, okay so i think when i first developed the studio and when i was younger as a person and as a maker a little bit less experience i suppose just come out of training um and uh also just creating the business as well or the studio i wanted everything to be i think a little bit faster but now it's funny because you know i guess 10 years on I now want everything to be a little bit slower, everything to be a little bit more careful. Um, This is the making. This is how I'm presenting. It's no longer about how many works I produce and sell. It's, it's, It's more or less about that. Even if it's that one thing that I produce, I wanted it to be something that I'm proud of and something that gives enjoyment to the person that you know, I guess owns it or purchases it or holds onto it or uses it. You know, I think that that meaning, that ethic behind what I do, how I do it, where it goes, who buys it, or where it's getting presented, means so much more now. So it's now a so much more slower process compared to say ten years ago. 
I would say it's not really a business anymore. It's like I said before, it's like part of my life now. It's almost life practice. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot more slower, a lot more. I think a gentle process compared to before, where I was just reliant on making a living out of. Now it's something that I don't have to rely so much because I've got other platforms within my life. You know the the teaching, the restaurant, where you know it's enough to get me going financially, and this can be something that I can just focus a little bit more energy and meaning, uh, I guess, towards. Thank you so much for your time today, Kenny. It's been so great to kind of have this deep dive into what you do with the restaurant and with um, your object design practice. Before I let you go, I've got three super quick questions for you. The first one is, what's keeping you up at night? YouTube. <laughs> YouTube keeps me up at night. Like during the day, it's like to, like basically I'm a very much a routine person. So when I'm going, I'm going. I don't really stop. I don't really I, I hate those I don't even take naps I don't really like those moments where it breaks a routine before I sleep I actually think about like nothing you know I like to just switch off think about nothing and sometimes just you know things like YouTube it's so hard not to you know go through the Instagram feeds the YouTube and I think that's what I end up doing or these days what I end up doing before I go go to sleep or sometimes keeping me up so and because like as um, I, I think I've mentioned in the beginning um, maybe off this podcast that I've started doing BJJ which is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu so a lot of my YouTube videos have been you know those uh, BJJ roles just watching that just before going to sleep yeah so YouTube <laughs> Second question, who, who else should I be speaking to? A great mate and uh, someone that I respect and someone that I really love as a person as well, uh, Dan Yi, who owns Artifisa uh, Coffee Roastery and Cafe uh, just down the road. I've loved sitting down there for a coffee many, many times. Last question, what gives you hope? Hope. Today, you know, like today gives me hope for tomorrow, and then I'm sure it's going to be the same thing for tomorrow as well. Um, just, just the daily, like, you know, I, I don't, I try not to look at two, three years beyond, you know, my life or my work, my practice. Um, day by day, you know, I try to stick to my routine. Like I said, I enjoy the everyday things that I do, just the little things that I do, um, and today gives me hope for tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kenny. It Thank has you, been mate. such a pleasure. Um, if people are listening to this and they want to check out your work, where do you send them to? Um, casually, you can just log on to my Instagram, which is Studio Kiss, my initials K-Y-S-S. Um, otherwise, studiokiss.com, that's my website. Um, or if you want to check out the restaurant, that's sung by Mabasa, M-A-B-A-S-A, which is located in Surrey Hills, Fitzroy Street in New South Wales. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous interviews in the series, really recommend you dig back in. Um, Topher Berm from Wildflower Brewery goes without saying, fantastic interview. Lee Tran Lam, the great food writer and journalist. Gemma Smith, the painter who lives just around the corner. Um, so many great conversations that we've had. I really recommend digging back in. If you know someone who would be into listening to this podcast, please let them know about it. That is really the best and almost the only way that people find out about a podcast like this. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much, Kenny, for jumping in on this. Pleasure, it's been pleasure. so great. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you, Matt. 
story for you.